Hello and welcome to the Science Set Free podcast. My name is Mark Vernon and I'm talking with Rupert Sheldrake. Hello Rupert. Hello. Today we want to consider the question, is science an act of faith? Now Rupert, first of all, can I just ask you, this sounds like quite a provocative question in the context of the new atheism and so on. Um, many people turn to science to get away from faith. Hmm. So isn't this just a bit of a red rag, red, red rag kind of question? Well, no, I don't think it is. I think it's a really important question. Because, you see, science, on the one hand, is a method of inquiry. I don't think any of us would dispute that, that it's a way of looking at the world that is, has been immensely liberating. It involves free thinking, putting forward hypotheses, paying attention to evidence, proceeding in a reasonable way, and so forth. Um, that's not what's under dispute here. What's under dispute is the way that science has become a kind of belief system or worldview, the scientific worldview, which is essentially a kind of materialist worldview. Um, and most people who believe that worldview don't actually know that they have a belief system. They think other people have belief systems, sort of Muslims, Christians, Jews, and so on, uh, but they just know the truth. So they think that this is so certain, so true, that they've somehow moved beyond mere belief to knowledge of the truth. Isn't now, that's a terribly misleading and uh, uh, belief system because people aren't even aware that they're making a lot of dogmatic assumptions. But isn't there some grounds for that move? Because um, the materialist worldview which you described there has been so fruitful, so productive. It, uh, everywhere we look in the modern world, it, it shapes and makes our world. Well, it's been brilliantly successful. No one would deny that. Um, it's been incredibly successful in, in, in its own way. Um, but it's mainly been successful in making machines. It's a theory that says reality is mechanical, machine-like. Everything's made of unconscious machinery. And we're brilliant at making unconscious machines. Where we look around, when we look around us, and cars, telephones, computers, uh, you know, jet planes, and so forth, these are machines. If we look at the other areas that science has addressed, um, it, like what's the nature of the mind, um, how should we live in harmony with our environment, um, how can the human economy work in harmony with the planet so we don't destroy our own futures, uh, in all these areas it's very much less successful. So I wouldn't say it's an unqualified success, I'd say it's a partial success. And, to, you know, to say that it works it's you know it's a bit like saying the soviet union was very good at producing you no know, rockets and nuclear warheads they certainly were they produced thousands and thousands of them but does that prove the whole system's perfect uh, no it doesn't the fact that the mechanistic science has uh, many successes to its name particularly in making machines doesn't prove that it's a correct worldview. So in a way what's happened is there's been a slippage from a stance towards the world that's adopted because it's very productive scientifically to an assumption that that therefore is the way the world is, a move from methodology to ontology. Yes. I mean, in the, in the 17th century when science first started, it, it was so successful precisely because it limited its concerns to what could be measured and, and understood in terms of mechanical ter science, you know, like weight and momentum and gravity and so forth. Um, it left out the mind and subjective experience and qualities that our whole life depends on. It just left those out. 
deliberately because it made things simpler. Um, but then when uh, it became the sciences became more ambitious by the end of the 19th century, uh, there were many people claiming this is the only way of understanding things. All other ways, religion, philosophy, and so on, are mythology, are simply discredited myths or superstitions that we've moved beyond because of science and reason. Um, so therefore, um, everything could be explained this way, including consciousness and the entire universe and the origin of things and so on. But don't you think it's a fair point that modern science has been going for well, say generously three or four hundred years. I mean, some people would say that modern science is actually much shorter than that and that science has done pretty well explaining many things. And so these things which you, I think, rightly identify as not yet well encompassed within this materialist scientific worldview, like mind, like the operations of human societies, um, perhaps parts of, of health and healing would be included in there too. At some point in the future, science, as it's now understood, um, will be able to explain these things. It, if it's an act of faith, it's actually an act of faith worth making, you might say. Yes, it's an act of faith in the true sense of faith. It's an act of faith in the sense that if we put our faith in this, it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we trust that we'll be able to explain minds in terms of brains, then we'll invest billions in fMRI scanners and that kind of thing, and we'll actually do it. Um, it's an act of faith very similar to a religious act of faith. And and acts of faith can have historical consequences. Except that maybe this is an act of faith that is going to find warrant at some point in the future. It will turn out that we can explain consciousness for it, perhaps by looking at brain states. Well, it might do. Uh, on the other hand, it might not. And there are many philosophers today and other people who think that it won't. And so um, if somebody says, well, well, you know, forget about anyone who argues against materialism, we're going to prove it in the future then this amounts to what Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, called promissory materialism. It involves issuing promissory notes against future explanations that don't actually exist. Um, I think this is nowhere more evident in recent years than in the Genome Project. Um, and I actually had an opportunity to test this act of faith uh, with Lewis Walpert, who's a leading proponent of materialism and reductionist biology. Um, the, he predicted uh, in 2009 that uh, we will soon be able to uh, predict every detail of a human from the genome of the fertilized egg, including abnormalities, and modify it at will. When I challenged him on this, I said, when you say soon, how soon? You know, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, and I said, in fact, I'll bet you a bottle of champagne that this won't happen in 10 years. This was in a debate at the Cambridge University Science Festival where we were, had a debate on the nature of life. Um, it, he changed his tune quite fast. He said, well, well, no, um, not 10 years. Well, I said, well, what, 20? And he said, well, no, no, no 20, oh, it would be too soon. And I said, well, how long then? He said, well, I think it will take at least 100. So, so I said, well, look, this isn't something that either of us is going to live to see. You know, it's a bit like people who say the end of the world will come in 100 years' time, you know. Is not testable. It's not science. It's an act of faith. So really, the the point where um, this um, you think becomes serious is when um, it becomes a sort of dogmatism, when it excludes other possibilities. It just pushes them out of court. And of course, you want to bring in other possibilities. Yes. I think that what we should do is test other possibilities now. I mean, since I've been putting forward alternative views of developmental biology uh, for years now, um, 
what I found the, the most common argument I encounter among defenders of materialism is that not that this is wrong or that it's illogical or that there's any flaws in the argument, but that it's unnecessary. And why is it unnecessary? Because in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, fill in the gap, uh, we will have explained all these things. Only if we fail in 50 years or 100 years do we need to take other alternatives seriously. Well, um, you know, it's a bit like the communists in Russia saying the state will wither away, will bring about a kind of utopia on earth, and and, um, and, 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 and people say, oh, it's not like that now. They say, no, but give us longer, and this system will work, because it's true. It's an act of faith, you see. And your sense is that just more and more and more time will be asked for and science will, in a way, atrophy. So it's quite serious in that sense too, isn't it? Yes, that I think that more and more time will be asked for. The the, the explanation of consciousness and, and, and so on is receding further and further. You see, in the 1980s with the Genome Project, we were promised that we'll soon have the key of life and understand human life in molecular terms. Lewis Walpert still believed that in 2009. Um, I have a wager with him that terminates in 2029, May the 1st, 2029. Um, uh, he wouldn't predict this of humans, but he then said, given the genome of a fertilized egg of a mouse, we'll be able to predict every detail. So I said, okay, we've got a case of port. We paid half each. That's the stake. That's the wager. But after a few days, as we were discussing this, he said, no, mouse is too complicated. He backed down to a chick, then a week later to a frog, then a week later to a nematode worm. Um, and so he kept reducing, as he talked to colleagues about what's likely to happen, he reduced it further and further. We now don't specify what organism. We say by 2020, given the genome of an organism, uh, it will be possible to predict every detail of the ensuing um, organism from uh, its genome. Um, he bets that'll happen. I bet it won't. So here we have a time-limited bet on whether it works. But, you see, to inhibit or prevent all other lines of inquiry, because we think that's the only one that would work, is a kind of monopolistic attitude. It's like saying, you know, the state should own every industry. There should be no competition, no other way of doing things than the centralised way that everyone... That's not the way to get, get things moving in the economy or in innovation. What we need is pluralism, alternative theories being tested and seeing which one's best, rather than one being given a monopoly. So you are still a scientist in the sense that you think testing things is the key defining uh, activity, as it were, that must be engaged in um, amongst scientists, but you want to bring in different kinds of explanatory theory. Could you just yes. tell us? Could you just tell us? Um, uh, give us an example of a different sort of explanatory theory that you would like to see put to the test. Okay, well, I think that the um, memory, this is one of the dogmas in science. You know, when I say science is an act of faith based on dogmas, in, in my book, Science Set Free, in England, The Science Delusion, um, I name ten of these dogmas, and one of them is that memory is stored as material traces inside brains. For a materialist theory of the mind, everything about the mind must be material. Memory is an aspect of the mind. Therefore, memories must be stored inside the brain as physical material traces. So, well, is memory stored in the brain as physical material traces? People have tried to find them for a very long time, and over and over again they've proved extremely elusive. Philosophers like Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell and Bergson 
um, have said that the materialist theory is completely in, incoherent, it can never work, and they've put forward powerful philosophical arguments for that. Um, but that hasn't affected the fact that 99.9% of research in neuroscience goes on in the assumption memories in the brain. And despite a century of failure in finding it, it hasn't affected their confidence at all, because this is such a fixed assumption. It sets the entire research agenda. Now, by contrast, I would say that memory works by a kind of resonance from the past to the present. It's part of a more general theory of morphic resonance, um, that you tune in to the past. Your brain's more like a TV receiver than like a video recorder. There's a kind of resonance with your own past. And this resonance is very specific for you because you're more similar to yourself in the past than you are to anyone else. But this resonance also works from other people in the past. Um, and the theory can be tested. For example, with rats, the prediction would be if you train rats to learn a new trick in London, then rats all over the world should learn it quicker because the rats have learned it here uh, by resonance. By um, um, And there's already evidence that this surprising effect actually happens. So this is a testable theory, and it gives us a different way of thinking about memory, and it fits the facts actually better than the materialist theory. So what I'm saying is that within science, it's good to be able to com to test alternative theories rather than have a dogmatic assumption that says, we know the basic truth, memory stored in the brain, that's the only kind of research that will get funded, that will get peer review approval, etc., etc. Well, it's very interesting you mentioned the business of getting things funded and getting the peer approval, because that, in a way, is... Um, the hard place that these alternative experiments and possibilities they have to they have to get over that don't they um, and you going and saying we need to do some tests with rats to see whether um, their memory is working in a different way um, it's going to be quite hard work to get people to put up the money for that well yes I mean that's a practical problem and it 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 but it's related to the more general question of science as, as an act of faith you see the, what I call the science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality and principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. So in relation to memory, uh, we already know that memory is stored inside the brain materially. Where else could it be? It seems like common sense, actually, even to people who aren't scientists. And So having that as an assumption and having it as a dogmatic assumption that's taken to be a truth in the absence of evidence, people have tried to find the evidence, they've failed. But it doesn't shake their belief, because this is a dogmatic belief, an act of faith, that we will explain it in terms of traces at some time in the future. Um, that's severely inhibitory. And I think that by recognizing that science is based on assumptions, by recognizing it's dogmatic, there's a chance of opening up the scientific process to make it more pluralistic, less like a kind of supreme soviet system of grant giving that that funds only things within orthodox approved levels um and allows for much more diversity i mean it's funny that in terms of the act of faith of science that um it is a very strong belief system and it's 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 a funny thing that scientists always are often using the word heretic and if you read new scientists for example heretic comes up surprisingly often um, whereas if you read the Church Times, or, 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 or it doesn't, um, you know, heresy is a term very widely used within science because science does have a kind of dogmatic belief structure, uh, which means that people who question it and put forward an alternative 
are treated as heretics, not as people who are doing valid research looking at alternatives. I mean, it's like saying that Dyson shouldn't have been allowed to invent a different kind of vacuum cleaner because he's a heretic, because vacuum cleaners work only one way, with bags that collect the dust, and to have a vortex vacuum cleaner is a heresy. It would be ridiculous mm. to say that. And this, But this same kind of heretical, dogmatic thinking is too dominant within science, and it affects funding and everything. I mean, I do think it's very powerful, actually. I was just at a... I'm a conference a couple of weeks ago, which was talking about memory. And in the coffee break, I said to a couple of people, do you know, when they were talking about memory, I was thinking about Rupert Sheldrake's ideas. And someone said to me, oh, you shouldn't mention his name around here. It is a very, very powerful taboo um, to think about things in different ways. Yes. Well, that's why I think science is an act of faith and it's a dogmatic belief system at the moment. And yet the very roots of science, its its most glorious moments have come from from challenging dogmas, from going against them, you see. So I think this is extremely inhibitory for science to be an act of faith and a dogmatic belief system. And moreover, as we've discussed uh, in a previous discussion, an act of faith that's linked to a comprehensive worldview, namely atheism, uh, which gives people a whole stance in life, which is they have they, they have a huge emotional investment in. And this definitely inhibits the freedom of inquiry on which I think true creative science uh, should be based. I think also it matters because science has to have a relationship with the public because ultimately it's public money that funds science. And if there's too much of a disconnect between the scientific worldview and in a way what people might like to see investigated, um, I know that many of your own investigations have um, make quite a big appeal to the kinds of experience that many, many people have. And you, I think, have put forward an idea that at least some science funding should be democratically um, uh, um, allocated so people could, mm. could say um, in some kind of ballot mm. uh, what they would like to see investigated. Mm. Um, so when you say this would set science free, it's not just to set science free from its dogma, but in a way might uh, provide a new sort of public interest in science, a new invigoration of science. Yes, I think so. I think opening up a lot of these questions would make science much more fun, much more interesting. Um, and I think there'd be much more public interest. And that's why I put forward this idea that 1% of public science funding should be spent on research that actually interests the public. Um, and because at the moment, the decisions on what gets funded are made by small central committees, the Medical Research Council, the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council, and so on. Um, which um, consists of establishment scientists, civil servants, and representatives of uh, corporations. Um, and their interests are very different from those of most ordinary people. In medical research, for example, uh, all the funding, the £1 billion a year from the British Medical Research Council, goes for conventional medical research. None goes for alternative and complementary medicine. And yet... Tens of millions of people are interested in alternative and complementary medicines. Um, so why shouldn't some of the funding go to study those, which could actually be very relevant to developing a more inclusive kind of health service? And I think also that um, there's work that could be done on um, something that perhaps would be 
is part of the mainstream already, but isn't very well explored. I'm thinking particularly of the relationship between spirituality and health and the role perhaps that, say, chaplains play in health. Many people would say they would like to have a visit from a chaplain when they're in hospital. Mm. And I think, uh, anecdotally anyway, uh, many doctors would say that that all helps part of the healing process. And yet somehow these things aren't empirically tested too. No, I think that the way to test them is through outcome studies, to look at um, what happens with and without. And this has already been done in America in in relation to prayer and meditation, uh, with the result that people who pray and meditate on average tend to have better health and tend to recover better from serious health challenges. Um, People who are religious and go to church, mosque or synagogue regularly tend to live longer and have better health. Now, then there's a dispute, is it because of the social support, is it just because they know more people and so on? Well, those are further questions for research. Um, But this kind of thing won't be done if we have a narrow dogmatic mechanistic view that says health and disease are to do with chemistry and physics, therefore it's all about surgery and drugs. Those certainly work and they're important, but there are many other aspects to health which can't be asked if we have this dogmatic belief system that is only uh, mechanism and materialism that's valid science. So to return to our original question, is science an act of faith? Um, You're saying it shouldn't be, but your worry is that often it is in the modern world. Exactly. Rupert Sheldrake, thank you very much.